Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. This week inside the Roleplayer Studio I've got Chris Bailey who many of you will remember from episode 5, Lost and Dying of Cold. So hi Chris, how's it going? It's going, going pretty well, thank you. And Happy New Year to you and all the listeners. Well, ex- exactly, it is Happy New Year. We're uh, currently straddling the uh, the year line. I'm, it's the 31st of December here in Chris's in New Zealand. Chris is a, a day ahead but four hours behind, so he's enjoying um, 2013 um, ahead of me here. But interestingly, Chris, last year was a, um, was a leap year, and we spent last Christmas in New Zealand. So I got to spend 300 and... 367 days and 367 days in 2012 that's probably the first and last time in my life that I'll uh, I'll get a year with 367 days but yeah that's uh, it's a little a snippet for um for any people that are interested in dateline type stuff which is basically zero people but anyway <laughs> so um just for a little bit of also for a little bit of background for anybody that perhaps hasn't listened to episode 5 Chris is a chap that I used to role play with um what I'll call my formative years uh, in terms of the way that I role played rather than actually the first time that I role played and we played a game of uh, mage together and um we played a few other things, but primarily it was a mage campaign that sort of threaded over a number of years and sort of solidified a number of my ideas about how a game should be and the, and the sort of stuff going on. So in a lot of respects, um, Chris is to blame for certain elements of Victoria, so send him some hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, evil laughter. That's, yeah, that's right. That's right yeah. They can actually hear the evil laughter, Chris. You don't need to... Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's got to have, it's got to have the, the sort of... Um, the, the, the subtitles there, otherwise people may not understand. That's right. They may just think that's your regular laughter and that you are an evil man. So how many role-playing books do you own and what was your first? Oh, God, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. I, when I was trying to work out how many I had, I, I I was just started off with all the systems that I've played because basically anyone that I liked, I gathered everything I could of them. Hmm. So I've probably got every, um, every supplement for most of the White Wolf games, all of the sort of D&D ones, all of the uh, Rollmaster ones, um, lots, 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 lots. Right. Um, my first game I ever played was basic D&D. Hmm. Uh, it, that came in the, I think it was the red box. Right, sure, yep. Um Although, when I was thinking about role-playing books, of course, then I started thinking about books that could be like novels, that could mm. be role-playing linked sure. type yeah, stuff. Yeah. Sure. And that would have to be Lord of the Rings. Right. would be the very first one that I had. Very first exposure. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the first exposure mm. I had was The Hobbit at mm-hmm. school, mm-hmm. and that inspired me. Um, and uh, I can vividly remember asking my school teacher, are there any more books by this author? Mm. Uh, and she said, oh, well, you know, there's, there's ones, but they're really for adults, they're not really for kids, and, you know, I could loan you one if you like. Hmm. And that's when I got into Lord of the Rings. Right. And, uh, and it all went pear-shaped from then, really. <laughs> I wasn't going to say pear-shaped. So you, stranger and stranger from then on. That's, well, there you go, exactly. Now, you we just mentioned The Hobbit there, and um, so I wonder if, um, have you been to the film yet? I have. Yes, I have. I have. So, so tell tell me about that. You don't need to worry about spoilers here. Um, okay. So, so what did you what did you um, think about it? Oh, well, I loved it. I loved it. Um, I just loved the um, the way he told the story. Uh, he took reasonable liberties mm-hmm. with the storyline. Sure. Um, but I think if you think about it, everything that he stuck in there was stuff that 
theoretically was happening in the background anyway. Yeah. Uh, except for the obligatory, hey, let's throw in some romantic sublines. Right, um, right. Because there's no abs- girls in The Hobbit, right? Um, in the book itself, I, there's no girls. None that I can remember. <laughs> Unless that bird. And, unless you count the spiders. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm pretty sure a few of them went, were... were were pretty nasty lolith type yes, creatures. That's right. Yes, I think that. Uh, yeah, I think we can be reasonably assured there were at least some double uh, X chromosomes running around somewhere. Although I don't know too much about the genetics of spiders. I presume they have double. Yeah, tell me about spiders. Do you know anything about the genetics of spiders, Chris? I I do. The, the the males tend to be quite small, and the females tend to eat them. Right. Okay. <laughs> but genetically so speaking, are they? It kind of says everything you need to know about spider sexuality. Really, uh, that does. Yes, it's a bit spooky, isn't it? Careful. Um, very careful. <laughs> be very very careful. So he took a few liberties. Now you're much more of a, a Tolkien scholar than I am, um, and I'm dying to get Richard Thompson on here. Is even more oh, scholarly yeah. on on Lord of the Rings. But um, yes. my understanding is that some of the bits that are. In the Hobbit are actually taken from other books. Like if you just read the Hobbit, it'll seem like it's something that's been tacked on. But like you say, yep. like it alludes to and fleshes out some of the other work from Tolkien. Well, that's right, it does. And things like the the White Council mm-hmm. doesn't get mentioned at all in the Hobbit. It gets discussed a bit in uh, in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and then it gets filled out an awful lot in some of his other unpublished papers and and uh, and sort of. Side mentions other stuff in the Silmarillion, mm. uh, but the the bit about um, the necromancer Dolgodur and um, and the White Council forcing him out, and mm. Sauron then escapes off and goes off back to Mordor. That was all absolutely le- legitimate stuff, mm. uh, and so I, I enjoyed the fact that he included it in the story. Um, not so sure about some of the. Some of the tweaks really didn't matter, like like losing the buttons from his jacket at the point that he lost them mm. in, in The Hobbit. Um, that was a little bit out of sync with how the story actually unfolded because mm. he really lost them trying to squeeze out the partially open back door mm. um, when he had the ring on. Right. Um, and that was to escape the goblins. Mm. And they didn't – and, of course um, – Putting Azog in where they did, where he wasn't in the, in the story at all, that was sort of a, a creating an ongoing tension. Yeah, yeah. So right. you've got um, you've got some um, yeah some some stuff going on in the background that everyone worries about throughout the movie. Right. Uh, that that was all added in and actually wasn't part of the the main storyline. I mean the the adventure all the way up to. Um, up to the Misty Mountains, right. really wasn't. It wasn't tension filled at all. It was all setting the setting the scene and mm, mm. jovial and humorous. There was a lot of humor in the Hobbit. Yes, didn't necessarily carry over. No, that's uh, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, with it being um, three films, do you think that, um, or at least have you noticed any bits that are sort of um, actually reference forward to the Lord of the Rings? And when you go back, and if you were to go back, and you had, you know two days at your disposal, if you were to, say, plop in um, the first part of The Hobbit, um, could you then watch it all the way through to The Lord of the Rings? Like, are there any, has he tried to sort of thread some stuff um, sort of retros- retrospectively? Um, I, th- I don't think he's really done that. Um, the, 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 the pieces of the, the story that I saw... Mm-hmm. Uh, were all sort of just linkers 
mm. that, that that didn't necessarily unfold an awful lot more of the storyline to you. Mm. Um, I mean, stuff like um, seeing the shards of Nassau mm-hmm. um, and just sort of filling in little gaps of, of Bilbo's interaction with the elves and that sort of stuff. That was, I mean, it just sort of made the story a little bit fuller yes. and, and created what I, you know, what I like to think of in stories is, is just sort of creating a more believable world because things keep backing, the storyline keeps backing itself up. Right, right. And I, I find that really quite useful in, in role-playing as well is that I try and create those kind of um, nods to events that have happened in the past where a little bit becomes a little bit clearer and people mm. realise they're not the centre of attention. Yes. And there's a whole world going on without their... Without their um, Interaction, yes, which is a lot more meaningful than what they're going through, and that that creates a, a world that tastes better. Mm. Yeah, that was one of the things that I definitely incorporated in, in Victoria from my exposure to to our our game was this idea of you know making sure that um, or not making sure, but trying to keep in mind what's going on in the background to like you say, you know, to create that that fuller flavour to sort of create that idea that there that it's not a you know there, there's nothing behind it, there's nothing to the side of them, the only things that exist are right in front of them, and, and what it is that yeah. they interact with, and I think you know as you say, you know, that adds depth and, and flavour to your uh, flavour to your world. So. Now, one of the things that that happened after Lord of the Rings, because I was in New Zealand um, relatively shortly after they finished um, perf- after they finished producing the Return of the King, and New Zealand in its infinite wisdom, I'm using air quotes there, decided that they should eradicate all signs of the Lord of the Rings having been um, filmed there, which I just yeah. found. Absolutely mind-boggling, considering how, how much of the um, considering how much money comes into the country from tourism. Let's let's make mm. it so that there are fewer things for people to look at. Because I went to because uh, where my parents lived, it wasn't very far to go to. Um, I'm not sure of the name of the park, but basically it's where they filmed Rivendell. Um, yeah. And there's like you go looking around the place, with, and <laughs> and there's a sign saying this is where the set for Rivendell was, but this is the, and this is all that remains. I'm like. Wow, that's just such a missed opportunity. But have they have they kept stuff around this time? They go, yeah, that was yeah, a really bad idea, <laughs> really bad well, idea. You know, people tend to think that governments have a centralised planning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in New Zealand, there's a piece of legislation called the Resource Management Act, and yep. what that says basically is that if you're going to have any impact on the environment, it has to be kept to as small as possible. So. The filmmakers, in order to be able to get permission to do stuff in the quite pristine areas that they were doing their filming, mm. they had to promise to return it to exactly what it was before they went in there and sullied it with their fantastical constructions. Right. Uh, and so they took them all down. Mm. And, and of course, after that, there was such a howls of protest from the um, from the tourism people that this next time they decided they'll, they'll allow stuff to remain. Oh, and, and so they yeah, absolutely. So all, all of Hobbiton, well, the majority of Hobbiton's actually being kept now, nice. which is fantastic. Hmm. Um, I must go and have a look. That's right. Yeah. And did they keep any of the bits that were in the, any bits they filmed in national parks and stuff like that? Or has everything in the national park got removed again? Don't know. Couldn't mm. tell you. Don't, mm. Really don't know. I would be surprised if they weren't uh, allowed to keep some of it because yeah. it's such 
a big thing, and it yeah. is it is in a strange way becoming part of New Zealand's cultural heritage it just, as well. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, really weird. Yeah, it and for I mean, a relatively young country in terms of recorded history, um, yeah. you know, that's that's such had such an impact that it's going to bring so many more people to to New Zealand that it seems crazy to to have got rid of it all. But anyway, yeah. fortunately they got a second bite of that cherry because it was real. Yeah. It struck me as being such a missed opportunity. But like you say, yeah. there was somebody in you know, on Glide Time in, in Wellington in an office somewhere saying, follow the rules. Yeah, that's right, let's follow the rules. Let's get rid of all of this this stuff. Now where's my next cup of tea as the tea lady coming around? Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just crazy. All right, so... If you if role playing was going to cease to to exist, or you know, it was your final role playing <laughs> supper for yeah, exactly yeah. for uh, for whatever reason, um, what um, what would you play? What would be your uh, final role playing supper, so to speak? Well, I, I, I found it a little bit difficult to to pick out of two. Um, well, you can have I, two. Yeah, 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 I'll have a main course and a dessert. Nice. Um, the the game that I had the best campaign with was one I played in Wellington, mm-hmm. uh, and that was under the Rollmaster system, and right. it was based in the in the, the Shadow World, so Kalthea. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the one that I would have as my main course, and the dessert would be Mage, right? Without a doubt, for sure. And that's um, yeah, that, that and, and and have you played? Much since last we talked, because I remember, you know, with some unfortunate series of unfortunate events would have, should have transpired and had meant you hadn't got back behind the screen, so to speak. Have you played anything in the last little bit? So last we no, talked? I haven't. No, you haven't. No, it's it. It just doesn't seem to be the the planets have not aligned, as it were, mm. and uh, it's just a little bit too difficult to arrange at the moment. Right. Uh, the household's really busy and you just got to pick your priorities. So, But one of the things I'm finding interesting is that um, when I was GMing or, or, or storytelling or whatever, you want to, whatever the listeners would normally call the sort of the person who oversees the game and pulls mm-hmm. it all together, mm-hmm. um, I think all pretty much all of my creative juices went into that. Right. And so now that I'm not actually running a weekly game, mm-hmm. th- those build up to a nice sort of um, pimple eruptive state, and right. I get these great ideas for a book. Mm. Uh, so I'm basically just sort of tottering around and looking at it out of the corner of my eye so I don't frighten it and it runs away, mm. uh, and planning that at the moment. So, right. yeah, so that's that's something that I'm, I'm working on, but it's... Um, yeah, dealing with all my own insecurities about, oh, I don't really want to write something because it might not be good enough and then I'll be shattered. Mm, kind mm. of side of things, which you'll understand having having written yes. Victoria yourself. Yeah. Right. Um, you sort of think to yourself, oh, dare I even really try? Mm. Yeah. And there's then a certain you think, yeah. oh, bugger out. Might as well do it. If I don't do it, it's going to be one of those things in the rocking chair at the old folks' mm. home and go, oh, God, I wish I'd done that. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing is that, that it's ultimately you're satisfying your own, you know, your own creative need by doing it. And if it's not, I mean, you're writing a book that you would love to read. So yeah. if, if you please yourself, then, I mean, that's really the, the, Standpoint you have to go at it from. You know, like I'm, I'm writing this for myself because this is something I would like to do. And if nobody else likes it, well, that's okay because there's yeah. nobody holding a gun to anybody's head to, to go ahead and, and do anything with it. But I'm um, going along with sort of the 
a relatively common thread that there's been for for most of the guests that I've I've spoken to is the the increasing average age of the uh, role player, and yeah. along with that has been a movement towards or not necessarily movement towards, but there's certainly been um, a lot more games produced that can be started and finished with zero preparation. Um, and, fin- and I say finished in, in one session, games like, say, for example, Fiasco, which the Road to Lindisfarne, which is um, one of one of the episodes here, um, and games sort of like that, where there's not a lot of time investment required from the person running the game, if in fact yeah. there is one. Um, and so that's sort of the next project that I'm working on right now, and I'll, I'll send you a copy of what I have so far. But um, as, do you think that's something that you would uh, consider getting into? Because I know that taking on a whole big campaign can be um, can be daunting, not necessarily from the standpoint of having the material prepared, but for the amount of investment that, that's required. Do you think that would mess with your head? It's kind of quite different. It's it's. I think that would be meeting a different need. Mm-hmm. Um my my uh, enjoyment I, I, for, for those listeners who who listened to episode five, I was talking sort of about the whole um, creating a um, a mythic world filled with archetypes, mm. where you actually as much exploring your own understanding of the world as anything else. Right. Um, and I kind of can't see how you could do that kind of thing in, in that kind of game. Mm. Um, yeah, so right. it's 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 targeting a different kind of thing. If it's if it's something that you do with your friends, mm. then um, and and you're doing it as a social activity, then it would be fantastic. Mm. It would be so good because you'd have something that you everyone would be familiar with that you could really work with and you could have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my friends now don't role play, which of course is the the reason that I don't role play at the moment is because I don't have a. a um, a small knot of people saying, hey, look, let's go and do this. Right. Um, so they want to go and do other things, and there's only a certain number of hours in the day, so you don't yes. do those things. Yes. So what's your definition of an indie game? Yeah. Um, when I was trying to – when I was thinking about an, what an indie game would be, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it made me think of the similarities with starting a business. Right. Any business. I mean, I work with businesses in, in my grown-up world, mm-hmm. um, helping them to develop systems and become more stable and, and that kind of thing. And in, indie games to me are those that um, people have started something up mm-hmm. and they've created something without a big sort of corporate body guiding them and controlling them and making them do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so an independent game is, as it, as it sounds, it's independent of any of the sort of big structures. So somebody would have a really good idea, they'd create something, there'd be a, a very small number of people who would make it happen. Right. Um, outside of any organisation that that, got, that that runs that kind of thing, that is a gaming company. Right. Eventually they become gaming companies if they're successful enough. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know if you can call them an indie, indie game anymore mm. after that happens. But they right. are to start with. So at a certain time, Dungeons & Dragons was an indie game. Right. When it first started off, nobody else was doing that sort of stuff. Right. Um, so I think it's just part of the, the normal progression. And, and, and as with a lot of, if there's a niche in the market somewhere, 
Mm-hmm. Somebody will fill it at an indie level. Mm-hmm. They'll build themselves up till they become a corporate level. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll try and dominate the market, and then they'll be missing all of the opportunities that new indie companies come in and fill. Right. Sure. It sounds so. It's a bit of a, a bit of a cycle. Um, I think so. So, along with that, um, now looking at sort of the other side of, of indie games, the sort of the creative side. Yeah. How do you see that model? That business—I don't know if you can call it a business model—but how do you see that that um, filling of niches and then and production from a small base? How do you see that that affects the content of the game? Like, is there a, a quintessential thing that makes a game an indie game? A couple of people have said um, have looked at the divide between a more traditional game, and again, I'm going to use air quotes. Um, a more traditional game will have more focus on character progression. Um, whereas a an indie game will be much more focused on story progression and relationship progression. Now the two are not mutually exclusive, but yeah. that's that's a path that a couple of people have gone down. Have you have any thoughts on that? Uh, it's it's again I I use the business model, business model to try and understand that, and and what I see is that people have seen a hole where nobody's nobody's doing something there, and and they want to try and do it. Everybody sees it as something new and. And uh, and exciting, and and it, and it captures their imagination in whatever that new methodology might be, or whatever the new mm. ideas might be. Right. Yeah, I see this. I see this happening quite a bit with people who start up games that are based on a, a series of novels, right? That don't quite fit in. I mean, especially where you've got a, a some kind of a, a magic system or something that doesn't fit in with any of the other systems that are out there at the moment. Right. Then. Somebody will start up their own game, right. self-publish it on on the web, and and people will start playing it. Right. Um, and then you've got the ones who are using very very different mechanics for how they run things. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, let's no. There's there's no right answer for that. It's just um, sort of explore this idea of what what indie means from a from a, a business standpoint and and what effect that might have on a role playing standpoint and whether there is yeah. actually whether you can be an indie game um, in air quotes um, even if you're a large production company. It's uh, just an interesting sort of thing that's going on at the moment, at least to me. Um, so, what causes a role playing game to die before the story finishes? Um, well, I, I've had a few experiences of games that have, that have died out. Um, I think it's when you lose your players, um, when they just start going through the paces. Um, so lots of captures that were. So that, that can be because you haven't done enough prep. Uh, mm-hmm. It can be because there's other issues. It can be because one of your players is is on something they shouldn't be on at the time that you're trying to game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they think <laughs> they're doing a really... Very, uh, a very specific one. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. They think they're doing really well. They think they're really funny. And, and everybody else is like, ah, oh, <laughs> that's not working for me either. Um, uh yeah, if if the players have stuff going on in their lives that that basically they just they just can't get into a, dis, a suspension of disbelief mode mm-hmm. because they're too they're, they're they're dealing with whatever they're dealing with, then yeah, it's not going to work then either. Mm. Um, and I, I've seen that happen a few times with people who, you know, it's just it, they, they come along because it's a it's a Thursday night and you're supposed to be gaming. They come along and within two or three minutes you realise that this is just not going to work right. because they just can't do it. Mm. Fair enough. 
Yeah, that, that idea of, uh, I think, engagement is key. And sometimes just for reasons outside your control, you know, you can't, you know, you just can't sort of get people hooked in. So is yeah. there a uh, is there a magic number of sessions um, that if you don't play the game is is dead? Because, like, it's, it loses, loses impetus and the next thing you know there's no game anymore. Ooh. My feeling is, my feeling is, if you miss three in a row, it's that's because uh, I I had um, I had a long campaign that was running for ages in mm-hmm. Wellington, and when I moved down to Christchurch, I used to I used to come up every six months or so and continue the game with all the players. Sure, um, and I think probably they had enough of a a connection to the game and history with the game that it really didn't matter to them. Sure. That, you know, it, you you do a bit of a catch up. You go in the last session. So and so did this. Mm. So and so got pregnant. So and so did something else. Right. Um, and this time, this is where we're at. Right. You know, and then everybody's straight back into it because right. the the um, the world is really vivid and it's just like stepping back and you're going on holiday again. It's mm. being back to somewhere that's a favourite place and then you're in it again. So sure. I don't think so. I don't think they're, you know. It, it, it will depend, mm. uh, as with all of these answers. But I don't think there's a magic number. I think right. uh, you, can, you can make it work. Yeah. Even if you can't meet together for ages, you can still get back into it. Right, sure. I mean, imagine if we if if we managed to get all the old bods together and started playing one of the main sessions mm. again, mm. you'd, you'd do some sort of fiction about, um, you know, it's six months after the last – events of such and such a campaign and this is the situation that everyone's in and mm. people dive into it pretty yeah, quickly. I don't think you're probably right. Yeah. Carrying a momentum from a long campaign is probably the is probably the thing, right? Like you've got to have people have some touchstones to go back to that they can easily slot back into that, that mindset. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so if you could role play with four people, living or dead, who would it be and why? And you can't choose um, deceased family or you know somebody that you want to see even though they're dead, although you can choose people who are dead, um, like William Shakespeare, say, for example. Yep. Um, and you yep. can't choose game designers. Um, okay. And you can't – well, you can't, don't play with anybody right now, so you've, you've got open slather after that. Okay, cool. Well, um, number one would be Carl Jung. Okay. Uh, because he was – one of the one of the names of understanding archetypes and 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 the psyche of people and and how myth fitted in with things and then number two would be Joseph Campbell, right? Uh, similar kinds of reasons. He he wrote the book um, Hero with a Thousand Faces, mm-hmm. which is sort of one of those sort of um, uh, quintessential um, esoteric gamer books that if if you've got a GM who's really into um, creating those kind of uh, mythic storylines, then they probably know all about that. RuneQuest, uh, no, it's not RuneQuest, HeroQuest, right. came out of um, gamers who really got st- into Joseph Campbell's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I think I'd probably pick Robert Redford. Right, okay. Uh, because I thought to myself, well, I really want someone who's an absolutely brilliant actor. Right. And recently um, the, the movie The Clearing, Okay. Uh, was on TV again, and that movie blew me away with how well he had acted. Mm-hmm. And so that reminded me of what a good actor he was. Mm-hmm. And then I think I'd probably pick uh, one of my friends, uh, Mike O'Hara, right. who he was such a excellent uh, player mm-hmm. uh, and a GM too. But with the way he played, was just it, it just 
he and I would set each other off. He'd be getting into the story and I'd be getting into the story and we'd feed off each other right? and uh, run in the games. Hmm. So that would be the four that I put together, Carl Young, Joseph Campbell, Robert Redford, and Mike O'Hara. Right, and what would you play? Um, probably Mage. Right. I it, would say. Yeah, and would you run the game or would you play the game? I'd run it. Okay, and what, any particular storylines you'd like to follow up? Carl Jung would have a have a field day with my psyche if I was <laughs> if I was running a game. He'd be like, oh. <laughs> yes. Anyway, yes, yeah, your motivations it, are showing. No, no, no <laughs> I think sometimes um, if you've got a group of people who are experienced role players, mm-hmm. and I'm really into running games that that people will get the maximum out of, you you really want to talk to them about what they like and what they want to do and where they want to go with a storyline before you start designing something. Mm. Um, When you're gaming with people for a period of time, you you get that information out of them anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think probably I'd want to talk to those four people and say, okay, well, you know, here's some options. What do you think? What sparks? What what makes you feel excited even Mm -hmm. talking about? And we'd start moving in that direction and design something to fit in with that. Mm. So what do you think you'd get Robert Redford to play? He's the only actor amongst the the group, but uh, is there some particular character you'd like to see him play? No. No. Again, with with gaming, um, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a great believer in, in letting the players... Um, find something that that they want to do. Mm. Uh, I, I, in episode five, I was talking a bit about how I thought gaming was quite a, a great medium for self discovery mm. and mm. Uh, personal development and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, I think it's quite important for for players to to pick something themselves because generally, on some deep level, that's something that they want to work with. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So I'm not going to tell him what he needs to work with. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so going to the flip of that question then, um, hell, hell exists and you're sent there contempt to play a certain style of game for eternity. What would it be and and why? And that doesn't mean you need to say, I don't want to play, say, for example, Dungeons & Dragons because I hate that game, but like a, a type of game or a thing that happens in a game um, that would just be hellish for you. I went to a... Um uh, a, a gaming con one time in, in Christchurch and the GM who was running the game, he was running a, a, a variant on Wraith right. where um, everybody was, was dead soldiers in mechanical armour who went around blowing people up and shooting each other and backstabbing each other and, and it was really, it was like pointless there was mm-hmm. no point to the story or there was no story really, everyone was going to die, everyone was going to die horribly right. everyone was betray each other and it, it was kind of more about um the gm having a look at me look at me i'm i'm running a game right. kind of experience and that was just hideous right, was right. so boring <laughs> i think that um i've had a couple of experiences with that type of thing where there's not really anything going on you're playing and you're playing and you're playing and you're playing and then it slowly dawns on you that there's actually going to be no story right you're just like oh wow this is yeah i'm not yeah. building up i'm not building up something this is not to juxtapose against this you know emotionally charged second half of the story that i'm going to be part of this is just going to be it and then we're going to be we're going to be done so uh, that's there's uh, no story and it's just system yeah right yeah yeah terrible but i think i think the thing that i really didn't like about it was that the the, the, the whole game was really about the storyteller 
Mm. And that was a, it really wasn't a game. It was just paying attention to the storyteller and anything a player would try and do, he would prevent. <laughs> it was just, it was dire. It, was <laughs> it sounds, it sounds horrible. So, so who would you, who would you be playing with? In hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, who would you be playing with in hell? Uh, I have no idea. That's probably the thing is that it would probably end up like one of those, one of those find your own path stories. You'd be by yourself in hell. There wouldn't even be the fun of the social interaction. Oh, you'd right. be you'd be going through the motions by yourself. <laughs> so it'd just be it'd be a one-on-one session with the, with the game master, but you weren't allowed to do anything. And you would probably be the game master who was trying to be a asshole to yourself as well. I mean, it'd be, <laughs> it would be dire, dry. <laughs> Hideous. Oh, I thought you were suggesting that that I would be your, the game master because it would be a hellish experience for me to be. A, I didn't. I didn't think our games went that badly, but maybe no, no, I remember things differently. No, <laughs> fine, no, fine. You. No, uh, it was Chris Bailey, ladies and gentlemen. That was Chris Bailey. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so, who's your favourite hero and why? Um, oh, that was a, this is such a hard question. Um, I'll, I'll go for current rather than historical favourites. Um, sure. I really, 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 really enjoy the um, the Dresden Files books by Jim Butcher right. at the moment, right. Harry Dresden. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that character. I like that hero. I like the sense of humour. I like the um, nobility of the character. Mm-hmm. Uh who struggles on even though he thinks it's going to, it doesn't stand a chance in hell. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think that would be, that would be my favorite hero at the moment. I mean, in the, historically, I think um, some of Raymond E. Feist's characters really mm-hmm. were, were um, uh, pushed a button for me. Right. Um, yeah. And the Belgariad too. You're another, somebody who yeah. I spoke to about the Belgariad from time to time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you gone back and reread any of those books? Oh, all the time, all the time. Um, I mean, I um, I keep on my bookshelf a small selection of my favourites. Right. Uh, and looking over there, I can see David Eddings. I can see Catherine Kerr. Um, that was the um, God, what's it called? The Devery series. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. I, I remember seeing it on your bookshelf. In fact, I don't think I ever got around to reading it, or maybe I read one. I don't know. I can't. I don't remember too much about it. Yeah, no, it's it's a really great series. Um, sort of based in a sort of Celtic uh, Iron Age civilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, common theme for Christopher. Um, magic is real, but most people don't realise it. Right. Um, and so you've got this guy who is trying to lead the the world along the right path, the noble path, mm-hmm. the way that the, the higher powers want things to go. Right. Um, but he's got to do it without um, revealing his capabilities because if you do that, people stop really trying to live their own lives and they expect that you'll deal with all their problems for them. Right, right. And just going back to what you're saying about uh, the Dresden Files, have you checked out the game, the Dresden Files? I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I I I really like it. Um, never had a chance to play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't know that I'd probably play it, play it under the mage rules, right? Sure, because I'm so familiar with them that I wouldn't have to learn any more mechanics. <laughs> <than maybe. laughs> 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was going to say for uh, just out of interest's sake, Lenny Balsera, who is uh, the guest on episode sixteen, was the writer of the uh, of the majority of the magic system for that. So, um, yeah. you, I think there may be some. I can't remember if we discussed it in that episode, but there's a lot of information about sort of his. Um, his, the epiphany that he had in putting that uh, magic system together, he was struggling with it, struggling with it. Then eventually, it just all suddenly came to him one day, and yeah. and uh, and that's the, the the result of that. Um, so, do you think you've got a? Uh, actually, not. I don't even need to ask that question because I've already answered. You're role playing soulmate, and that is mage, right? <laughs> and in fact, I think that it might have been uh, my talking with you that actually prompted that question. So, um, already so. And I think you've also answered this next question, which is, "What's your worst con experience and why?" And you're going to say, yep. the, <laughs> the, yeah. the 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 there, there was a games master who was a toss pot <laughs> and played a race game that went nowhere. Right, right. And going back a little bit to what we we're talking about, somebody who'd imbibed something before a game session. Um, <laughs> have you have you ever had a role playing breakup? Like where you've said, I don't yes. want to play with you guys anymore or you're not playing here anymore or we're not going to play this game anymore and then had to secretly start up another campaign somewhere? Yeah. And how do you yep. how do you handle that? Um, it depends. Depends um, who it is that you're um, – who, who you're not going to game with anymore. Right. I've, I've had situations where two of the players had a big falling out. Right. And so that was never going to happen, and I just let them sort it out themselves. And, right. and one of them decided they weren't going to turn up, and the other one decided they were. Right. That was fine. Then I had um, a group of people who really didn't like the fact that they the old school friends, mm-hmm. and they just couldn't get the head around the fact that I was gay. Oh, is like that it right? Was, it was just they well, couldn't, and they 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 just acted weird cold and distant it was just strange and i was just like when when there was a reason that we didn't game anymore i just never i just never bothered to to try and start anything up again because it just wasn't fun right so so you came out while that game was sort of insisted like you started the game before they knew you were gay or um uh they were old um university buddies Mm -hmm. uh and when i moved back to auckland i i got back in touch with them and Mm. And we started playing a few games, mm-hmm. and because they had a they had a group of other friends who were that I didn't know who were gaming there, but most of them were people that I knew. But mm-hmm. I didn't fit into their box anymore. I wasn't who they remembered. Mm. And I don't actually think I changed at all, but they thought I had, and so they weren't at all sure how to take me. Mm. And it just didn't. It was no fun. It it it. Prevent it. I mean, remember we were talking about what causes a, a role playing game to die, and I said mm. any kind of stress. Right. Th- this was that. It it took away people's attention from the game, and right. so it really worked. There was no point. Have you found that um, acceptance of being gay is polarizing? You have people that are okay, and it's it's not even worthy of comment, and then people who are not okay and then that's the end of it like do you find many people that sort of fall somewhere in the middle and then they wrestle with it yeah normally i mean it's i think it's a continuum like with most social issues or, or views of politics or anything else um you've got people who've never thought about the question and so suddenly the question's in front of them and they sort of have to work out where they stand right you've got ones who have very firmly held beliefs of one extreme or the other um yeah 
it, 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 it depends. I mean, I had some um, I had some friends in Auckland that I got back in touch with, and uh, one of them was absolutely fine, and he thought it was a you know made no difference as far as he was concerned. He knew who I was. Mm. Uh, and then I had this other friend who somehow thought that this meant I was going to leap on him at some inappropriate moment and try and do something he didn't want. Right, like like everybody does to every everybody that they know, right? Like it's just yeah, <laughs> as, you do, as you do, you know. You go, you know. Obviously, if I was a straight man, he would be frightened. I would leap on his wife. Mm, that's well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing, and maybe you can give me a perspective on this, Chris. But. Um, Often I hear it said, and it's often portrayed this way in, in films as well, which is perhaps not the best yardstick to get, but oftentimes stereotypes are stereotypes because they're true, but that it's very unusual to find a man that is a friend with a woman um, and vice versa, where there's not some intent from one or the other of the people in the relationship that the other one is not aware of. So I'll, I'll stop on that point there and see first of all if you agree with that because if you don't then we, there's no point discussing my, my uh, theory here. I, I think um, in every relationship we have there is some of that tension mm. because I think I, I, I spoke last time about the idea of us having at least three levels of consciousness. You've got the instinctive sort of lizard survival level mm-hmm. You've, who, who, who will fight and kill and and mate and do whatever it has to do to survive. Mm-hmm. You've got the mammalian emotional level where you've got the driving needs that, that push you. And on that level, any um, appropriate mate is a possible mate. Sure. And then you've got the, the, the sort of humanity level of consciousness where, you know, we have a... a a series of accepted right and wrongs, whatever they may be, mm. um, things that you can do and things that you can't do, whether those are actually social constructs or not, eh, let's not worry about that, but they are there. Mm. And so you know, there's certain things you just don't do. Right. Um, and I think there's going to be um, there's going to be people operating on any of those particular levels at any particular time, and so you might find that there's guys who have absolutely no problem being friends with um, with a woman that they find incredibly attractive, um, but they have a way of um, holding that that impulse and turning it into a, a high regard or you know an appreciation sure. rather sure. than trying to um, fulfill that desire mm. and trying to find a way to achieve it. I mean, you you only have to look at some of the people that, that are exercising the gyms mm. and the way they look at some of the other people who are there to sure. know that those people have very poor <laughs> impulse control. <laughs> That's right. So I find I have a problem with that all the time, people staring at me as I, uh, as I walk past uh, on, on the outside yeah. of the gym. Largely the yeah. look on their face is repulsion, but there you go. Um, so Post what my... <laughs> Do What's... not kill the person who's walking out, walking outside. <laughs> that guy, this, that guy, the way that guy looks is the reason why I'm in here. Um, <laughs> so, um, what's your best con experience and why? Um, it's funny. One that you talked about um, a previous time, where um, I think Mason was running the game, and he he ran a game where it's based at my home yes. out at Lincoln. Yeah. And he'd taken lots of photos and stuff, and he told this really fun story about um, a mad 
scientist type who had summoned the Cthulhu elder gods and was trying to sacrifice the gamers to it. Mm. Uh, my, I re- I had such a good time outside of the games with all these gamers continuing to play their interaction with me. Yes. I mean, I would have I would have people walk down the corridor, see me scream and run away, and it was right. so much fun. It was yes. just hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that game yeah. was called Playing with Fire, and I'm really hoping to get uh, Mason on the show here. He's talked about quote unquote hanging up his dice bag, so I'm hoping I can get him on so I can at least talk about Playing with Fire because that was such a such a meta idea, um, yeah. and it was it was brilliant the photographs he took that that went along with it, and that was all based on um, it was it is that Bob Schnoblin, not Bob Schnoblin, because that's the character from Project Twilight, but um, <laughs> somebody, a Schnoblin or something like that. I can't remember what is it, the actual guy's first name is, but is he the one that wrote that book or is that a different book? Um, yeah, I had the, I had a, a book called Playing With Fire that um, one of my well-meaning Christian friends gave to me to explain to me why it was such a bad idea to be to be playing these demonic games. Right. Opening myself up to the influences of the eve of the dark side. That's right. <laughs> 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 had no effect on me at all. Um, yeah, and and for some reason I don't I don't know I don't even remember how how he got hooked into to taking that as an idea for a storyline. Mm, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I didn't was, get a chance to he, play, he, but I enjoyed he was, watching. He it was for a sure. fantastic um, uh, concept designer for for stories and the like. Mason, mm, just yeah. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He turned them into films and stuff as well. So you can look up. Yeah, on, you yeah. can look up on IMDb. I think one of his titles is on there. Um, yeah, um, he's got one called um, "A Killer Never Loves." Yes, which yeah. I yes, yes, indeed. I'm yeah, a number of shot in the elevator. That's right. Yeah, you are. Yeah, and I think there are a number of people. I think I would, probably would have been in that if I'd, uh, uh, if I'd, if I'd been around the place. And there's even um, Alice in Video Lands near as well, which is a, uh, which is a, a. Did the video store survive the earthquake? Do you know? Uh, it, it's been it's been revived, resurrected, oh, it? nice. and it's even got its own small cinema in there now. I think it's like a six seat cinema. Wow, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's yeah. Fantastic. yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, Allison Video Land is a video store that before there were any of the major um, video chains like Blockbuster and stuff like that or Easy Video um, was had art house videos like videos you couldn't get a hold of, and it retained that niche market. Um, and even apparently to this day, uh, you can get basically any type of film from there that you want. Like the more obscure is the only place you can really go to get it. So, yeah. so there's a top tip for any video store owners out there if there are any listening. You know, get some niche titles, and that's probably the best way to ensure the survival of your business because that's been going now and going strong for at least strong. at least thirty years, right? At least yeah, thirty years. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, what makes a great convention game? We know it doesn't make a good convention game, but what makes a great convention game to you? Um, lots of hooks, lots of, um, I think getting back to the idea of what pulls a, a player in, mm. there, there needs to be something in the game that they are excited by or that they, um, can relate to or that they want to explore or they, they, they feel drawn into. Mm-hmm. So, and I call those hooks. Um, and I, I guess I could think about it from a from a sort of psychosynthesis point of view and, and think about what the various needs are that people have that they want to, to, to deal with and you just coldly and consciously stick one in for each different type of personality that mm-hmm. might be something. Yes. Um, but just just generally think about the kinds of people that you're likely to have and, and think about 
how am I going to include something in the storyline for them? Right. And do you think that part of that is writing a good um, a summary for it for the convention handbook so you are going to attract those types of people? I'd be really specific about the sort of things that the game is going to have. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, you know, you, well, you want to you want to create um, the first hook in, in that description so that people go, ooh, that sounds like something I'd be into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The worst thing that can happen is that you get the people who don't fit into any other game and you've mm. got a whole lot of, um, you know, walking wounded that you're trying to create a fun game for. Mm. Yeah, that would t- that t- That's really hard, really, really hard. Mm. Bit of a challenge, though, I guess. I guess you could try and be, oh, absolutely. Try and be positive. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing. It's, a, it's not a, What is it called? It's not a something other. It's an opportunity. I've lost all the <laughs> words today. It's one of those yeah. things anyway. So what are your rules for and what are the best role-playing snacks? Uh, they must be non-staining. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and easy to clean up after. So right. it, spare ribs is is really not a good role-playing snack. I've right. learned that one. Right. <laughs> uh, it gets on the character sheets, it gets on the computer console, it gets right. on the carpet. Right, sure. And your whole house ends up smelling of, of barbecue sauce afterwards. So no, nothing like that. No ribs? Um, if you're... Depending on the kind of game you're playing, <laughs> mm-hmm. you may or may not want to have lots of or very little caffeine. Right. Um, some of the gaming that I, I did with uh, Richard Thompson and Craig Dodge, um, we, you needed a lot of caffeine because they went all night. Yes, yep. Uh, and so we'd be drinking, you know, buckets and buckets of Coke or, or Seven Up or something like that just to keep yourself going through mm-hmm. the night. Right, yeah, for sure. Um, and then at the same time, if you're trying to run a, a, a game that is uh, is kind of deep and deep and, and, deep and meaningful, um, then you might not want people too wired. Yes. I've got a few verses for you here, and you can either decide to pit these guys against each other in a battle, or you can just tell me which is your favourite and why. But Dumbledore or Gandalf? Gandalf. Why? Gandalf was an eternal spirit. So you prefer him into like he would? You think he would? Uh... He, he's oh, prefer. I mean, he he his whole purpose in life was to uh, get the world to unfold in the way it's supposed to, right? In line with Eru's great song. Mm. Sorry, dipping into the summer early in here, mm. um, and that uh, resonates with me. That idea resonates with me. So if if I had to choose the company of one, it would be Gandalf. Right, yeah, that's goes to that sort of question of you know why don't you get, why doesn't Gandalf get the eagles to fly, you know the the one ring and, and to the to Mount Doom and stuff like that and and I always I never sort of have the conversation, um, but perhaps I should and and the obvious answer is because that's not the way that that's supposed to unfold. Like Gandalf is not somebody who's supposed to do. He's sort of supposed to oversee it's the natural unfolding. And we were talking a little bit about that before, right? I think it's simpler than that. I think they could do it. I think that without all of the distractions that kept the the eye looking elsewhere, mm-hmm. he would have seen it coming and he would have dealt with it. Right. And I don't think the great the great eagles could have coped with the the full attention of of Sauron and have the ring on them at the same time. I just don't think they could have done it. So I think that's the real reason why it couldn't be done that way. Well, you just scuffled my my bigger picture idea there, Chris. Like that's. Uh... This um, 
hey, it's just my idea. It doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, Chris, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you then, anyway, whether I believe it or not. That's right. Um, the, the, uh, I can remember um, playing the Lord of the Rings collectible card game with um, Richard and Craig and various others, mm-hmm. um, and one of the concepts that they had was that the ring would corrupt people, uh, and when they got to a certain point of uh, their, of being corrupted, they just flipped over to the dark side, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Gandalf was very susceptible to it, and mm-hmm. the elves were quite susceptible to it. Mm-hmm. Basically, the more powerful the the creature was, the more susceptible it was to corruption and, and loss of loss of the game. Basically, you lose the battle. Right. Um, and of course, I think the King of the Eagles is is sort of in the same line as a lot of the other great eternal creatures uh, in Lord of the Rings. And I think you you the the concept is is that they just couldn't cope. Whereas the the hobbits were like the distillation of of everything that was stable and and earth fecundity and resilience and good naturedness and all those sorts of things. The 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 ideals that couldn't be corrupted. Right. All right. Fair hmm. enough. There you go. So, what about Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker? Oh. I think I think I'd have to go for Luke Skywalker because at least his paradigm is consistent. Well, that's um, a, that's a Harry, big... Go ahead. Oh look, I get so frustrated with the Harry Potter stories. Okay, so how does their magic work? Where does it come from? Right. Why is it limited only by their paradigm? Could people use magic before they had Latin? <laughs> right. I mean, ah, anyway. <laughs> It's a children's story, so that's okay. And I'd like to explore. I'd like to explore this further, but just keep in mind that you're uh, you're throwing your lot in with the midi chlorians here. So, so, so your problem with Harry Potter's magic is like where does the where does the magic come from? Oh, uh, it's just there. There, there is no um, there is no exploration of the paradigm at all. So it's a it's a plot tool, um, and so you know. Why are there? Why are there wizards? Why do the wizards actually not do anything about solving world hunger and 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 curing diseases? I mean, you know, there's all these sort of adult questions that aren't answered at all. Aren't even. It's just not there. The inconsistencies that were in there, I found difficult. Um, and the, I guess that was. I mean, I just find that frustrating myself, and so that took away enjoyment of the the story. That's all right. That's just me. <laughs> well, I'd like to explore this paradigm a little bit further because mage being being our uh, our common ground, basically. Um, yeah. So, because the, all of the wizards and witches are, yeah. are born magic. Like, they're born magic or they're not born magic. So it's obviously some sort of genetic type deal, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, in that respect, I'm happy with it being uh, genetic predisposition for it but Dumbledore doesn't always use a wand right like some I mean they don't they don't have to I mean uh, some of the cases with uh, I can't can't remember the name of the shape-shifting witch who was one of the teachers but Tonks I couldn't tell you Um, she doesn't use a wand most of the time either and they don't have to it's it's a tool that helps them to focus or 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 bump up their power or whatever Mm -hmm. it would be sure um, 
And they do have a little bit of discussion about, you know, what's in the wand. And mm. obviously that has some kind of a, uh, um, you know, whatever's in your wand has something to do with where you access your oomph from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it nev- they never really go into that in any detail. So there's sort of a there's a nod to there being an underlying explanation there somewhere, hmm. but it's, it's just a nod. It's just saying, "Oh, trust me, I know what I'm doing." <laughs> but doesn't isn't that addressed when the when Harry summons his Patronus and like all well, the magic comes from from within, right? Yeah, so they say. <laughs> I'm not going to draw you on this, am I, Chris? All right, fine. <laughs> okay. okay. It, it, yeah. I, I, you could you could you could read that however you like. I mean, yes, it comes from within. So, depending on what paradigm you might want to apply to it, if I apply Carl Jung's psychological thing to it, they will pick something that is the the core of their identity that it, that that is the the one unchanging thing about their nature. Mm-hmm. And that's the form it takes. So it could be the little bunny rabbit hopping around. It could be the noble stag. It could mm-hmm. be a tiger it could be whatever Hmm. and the reason that drives away the dementors is that the core of your being cannot be shaken because that is where you begin from Hmm. it's the it's the axiom that is not able to be challenged and that's the opposite of what the dementors do so it drives them away right um so yes it comes from within the magic comes from within well who knows? <laughs> All right, fine. I'll leave you to your midi chlorians. Um, <laughs> so, uh, John McLean or um, Indiana Jones? Oh, Indiana Jones. Absolutely, oh. Indiana Jones. Um, just because he's he's seen so much more, and he's so much more interesting. Mm. Absolutely, oh. John John McLean's a, a, is a, is a fighter. No mm-hmm. doubt about that. Um, but. He's not he's not necessarily a thinking man's fighter, whereas um whereas Indiana Jones definitely, you know. Mm. He'd rather not be, you know. It's the old one of the the bringing a sword to a gunfight. Yes, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right, <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Literally in that film. Um, literally. So, so that the, those two though of those two, I would say yeah. that John McClane has the has the greater is, is grittier, um, and that sort of falls more in line with um, your discussion of Harry Dresden. Yeah, yeah. But, but Indiana Jones is more well-roundedness is more appealing to you. I, I think his is a bigger world, right? Okay. Uh, and his his um, motivation is larger, right? Uh, I mean, he starts off very much just seeking his own uh, wealth or, or, or uh, fame. Mm-hmm. Um, but invariably he gets drawn into the bigger story. Yes. Yep, for sure. Yep. Whereas John McClane tends to just react to whatever's going on around him and basically shoot things. Right, sure. And that's he, okay. Yeah, but he's doing that for the love of his wife, though. I mean, that's the whole... It, again, it's the reptile brain. <laughs> Must protect wife. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Okay. So, what about um, Indiana Jones or Han Solo? It's still Indiana Jones. I think Han Solo again is 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 uh, is a character that's focused on his stuff, 
later in the storyline, he he starts doing stuff for his friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Indiana Jones is just that little bit richer, and, and you know, it's kind of the difference between a ham sandwich and a, a, um, Heston's feast ham sandwich. I don't know if you've watched any of those. Um, Heston's Feast story uh, uh, TV shows, but basically he he revisited the 1980s and tried to make uh, a toasty pie that was three Michelin stars, <laughs> and it's kind of different between the two characters to me. Right. Um, Indiana Jones is it's got a lot more flavour to him and a lot more texture and a lot more richness. Right. And um, so yeah, he'd, he'd be my choice. Okay, the last one then: Indiana Jones or Deckard. From Blade Runner. <laughs> same same actor. Yeah, but different different character, right? Huh? Different but, actor? Yeah, no, no, same same character. Same actor, different character though. Like same. three different sort of manifest. I'm not gonna get you to choose between six six days and seven nights. Or uh, uh, I'd still go for Indiana Jones because the 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 backstory and everything is there for us in a lot more detail. Sure. I mean, it's kind of mean because, I mean, you've got, what, three or four movies to play with. Mm. Um, but even so, that's my choice. Well, fair enough. Right, so let's go with, we've got one lady, one here. This is the penultimate question. So, uh, Princess Leia or Arwen? Uh, um... Ooh, that's, there's no that, that's not an obvious choice for me mm. um, that's what us digital broadcasters try to do Chris we try to make interesting questions yes. probably Arwen um, just because just because that storyline is more about the big questions of good and evil and and free will and that sort of stuff. Um, whereas the Star Wars um, mythology, they keep going through the same cycle of stuff anyway. They never learn from their mistakes. <laughs> so here's a question about Princess Leia. Is Princess Leia still a princess, even though Alderaan was uh, destroyed? Well, if you can be a princess by being adopted, <laughs> any- <laughs> oh, so she's got two strikes against her. So first of all, she's adopted. Issues with calling her a princess. Um, yes, she's still yes, a princess. She so intrinsically, she's, she's a princess because she was designated that. But both of the body that designated her a princess has now been destroyed. These are important questions. They are. They are. I mean, I would. I would say that uh, to borrow from some of the the paradigm beliefs of people in New Zealand if you choose to assign yourself to a group, you're in that group because you've chosen to assign yourself to it Mm. Um, and so if she thinks she's a princess, she's a princess (laughs) so she's being a princess when she's dead because she's thinking of herself as being a princess then Right, sure. Okay, so by that rationale, my daughter is in fact a princess. So that's <laughs> it. Yes, she's your little princess. That's right. Yeah, according to herself, she's her own little princess too. <laughs> well, that's true too. Okay, so for all the marbles, then, Chris, if you had one role-playing related wish, what would it be? 
I can remember asking questions like this to somebody, like, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Mm. You know, everyone was going, oh, I want to teleport, I want to fly, I want to do this, I want to do that. And I wanted to be able to heal. So I think I'd still have to go back for that one. I think that's just, that would be just the best. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Bailey. That's it for episode 48 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. If you'd like to get a copy of Victoria, go to hazardgaming.com and click Buy Victoria. You can get it print-on-demand. You can buy some of my first edition numbered and signed copies. You can also get it on PDF, but if you scroll down on the right-hand side, until you're just across from the field for your email address, you'll find a secret link which will take you to a page where you can get it for not $9.99, but just $6.99. In any case, next week's guest is Wilhelm Persson from Sweden. So until then, keep talking the walker.